welcome to My Faculty Podcast at Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversations relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Research Quality. Welcome to Research Talk. I'm Lee Statlander, and with me today are a panel of three distinguished faculty members at Walden. I'm going to let you each introduce yourself so our listeners know your voices. First is Laura. Hi, I'm Laura Lynn. I'm a Dean of Research in the Center for Research Quality and Faculty in the College, uh, the, uh, the College of Education. And Cheryl. Hi, this is Dr. Cheryl Keene. I am a core senior faculty member in our College of Education. And Bonnie. Hi, this is Dr. Bonnie Molinex, and I am also core faculty in the PhD education program. Great. Our topic for today is mentoring doctoral students through qualitative data collection and analysis. I'd like to start by hearing all of your views on why you think it's important to be involved in your students' data collection and analysis. Why not just turn them loose, let them do it on their own? Laura, you want to start? Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Lee. Um, this is a really good question, and it is so important. In the years of mentoring, I found that it's so important to be proactive when it comes to helping your students with data collection and analysis. As novice researchers, they it's sometimes they don't know what they don't know yet. And while they might be able to prepare uh, good plans, good outlines, good documents, they really need help in thinking through how to uh, think about how they will get, you know, draft their questions in a way that's going to uh, really collect the data that they need, and and the way that they do it. Um, you know, it, it you know the, their their interview style if they're doing interviews, um, really thinking through that process to make sure that they can get the the best uh, data possible. And Cheryl. How about you? Well, so one way to think about it is why the um, a committee content member and the faculty who's the methodologist in the committee may both have, might have different reasons for not letting the student loose. So um, the a content person might be thinking about the final chapter and interpreting the data in, uh, in light of the field and without thick enough qualitative data, it could be really hard to compare one's findings with uh, what else is available in the field. And for the methodologist, be the methodologist chair or not, this is our opportunity to teach students um, the beauty of qualitative research is putting your, yourself and your um, subjectivity aside and um, probing deeply enough to, um, to really understand uh, their experience and the perceptions of the research problem that you're tackling. So one of the things that I've been doing earlier on is um, at the proposal stage is insisting that my students don't just write uh, flat interview questions, but that open-ended questions that they then have prompts for, and the prompts are right there because that seems to help them understand that that they're not doing something like a questionnaire and, you know, listening so they can fill in the blanks. Um, and I'll talk, I'll talk later about why I love that learning process for the students. It sounds like one thing that that would come out of that would be that you're forcing them to actually listen to 
the interviewee's response, which I know students often have problems with, so that they know what follow-up question then that they should be asking. That, that, that's right. And so because I also require students to send me transcripts of their a practice interview and then the first, second, or third um, interview in their data, is I can see, and almost consistently, the data is too thin, they let an interviewee get away with just a short answer, and they don't say, tell me more, they don't have prompts that are lined up with, uh, that might be reflecting their literature review or their conceptual framework. So, um, and they talk about themselves too much. So I've just read a bunch of my students' interviews, and, and I call them on it in, in this uh, setting that I'm, I'm doing kind of a clinic, uh, uh, synchronous Zoom clinic with them. And they, they, they confess to the newer uh, students that, yes, I realized I was talking about myself and I was way too enthusiastic when they said some things, right? And then didn't respond when they said others. Bonnie, how about you? So I think it's really critically important to be able to balance this. There are times when they need support right up front because quite frankly, qualitative research is its own growing and developing process. And if they don't have an advanced knowledge of what they're going into, that can be problematic. But they also don't know what they're going into, rather like Laura was saying, they don't know what they don't know. And so there are other times as they enter into that process that they need some support so that when they're in the middle of it, you can help them see what it is that's in front of them and they have a reference point. But I think I'll add, other than my agreement with both what Cheryl and Laura have said, is that, um, taking the questions and taking the plan and making sure right up front that it is extremely clear to them how their interview questions and or their observations and or um, their focus groups, however they are structuring their qualitative analysis, that every instrument and every uh, indicator is going to be something that is connected to their research questions and that they have at least thought going into it how what they found in their uh, literature review and their own research into the literature, what it is that they might be seeing and might be finding down the road, and then be really clear that they can't be asking questions that lead to that, but that listening skill in the context of being confident that they're actually going to get information that's directly related to the research they've laid out is really important upfront. And if you just turn everybody loose right after the proposal and they're never check-ins, then you miss potentially miss some of those opportunities for that just-in-time learning and support and mentoring. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying that as a chair, it really is your responsibility to be mentoring at this stage, not just supervising. You're actually trying to help them learn how to do research. True. Yes. And, you know, I've read some of the research on teaching research and, and I've, I've uh, seen, seen results in different studies that say that the hands-on learning part 
right? It's where the learning happens. So as much as you can do hands-on learning in a research course, but if there's not a lot of time for that, or it's not, the project is not as relevant to their interest, the dissertation is where it's at. It's like an apprenticeship, I believe, in becoming a researcher. So if an apprentice, if, I, if I'm a mentor, I have an apprentice and I have to make sure mm -hmm. that they're getting the best experiences they uh, practice those skills for the first time. I love that. I love the idea yes. of an apprentice. Um, so moving on to our second question. So how do you mentor them through data collection? And why don't we start with Cheryl this time? Uh, so I've um, been trying something new because I've sort of switched my own work schedule. So I'm working on weekends now, having tried to protect my weekends for a while. So I can get a larger number of my mentees together in a synchronous way because uh, our students are working independently um, at this point. So um, I'm, I've been having what I call clinics and I started with their IRB application and then we worked on interview questions and I've got this group of six or eight students who are all collecting data and starting to analyze and it has been incredible so i can step back a little bit from uh preaching about what they need to do they can hear from each other how uh th they confess to each other they made a mistake their first two interviews were too thin they talked about themselves too much they laughed together um the other thing they've been sharing with each other visually is their coding methods so uh, none of my students are using Invivo at, at this moment. So they all have these sort of sticky note, colored sticky notes on big pads of paper. So they, they show that or they move their screen to their uh, whiteboard. And the other students are both aghast, the newer students, right? They can be aghast and overwhelmed. But on the other hand, they can get excited, say, oh, this is a, pr a manual process I can throw myself into. And then they talk about how they have to adjust as they get more and more data, they have to find better ways to handle all the data. So that's been my latest learning. You know, what strikes me with that is that you're also showing them how to mentor, you know, so that in the future, if they are supervising doctoral students, they are learning how to do that through that interaction with each other, which is really nice. It's a great idea. So Bonnie, how about you? Yeah, to to build on that mentoring, I've for a long time now had a first Monday research forum mentoring meeting with my whole community of mentees. Um, and that's developed into building a very strong community. And we have periodically, because they take responsibility for facilitating a session, we've also had sessions where the data analysis or the data collection or the latest one was managing literature reviews and moving things on, where they have taken the primary lead on that. And I think it makes a huge difference to have that dialogue going where you can. Now that said, it also is very important to be able to have the one-on-one -on -one and or the one-on-one committee conversations so that you can check in periodically, see where they are on their data collection journey, figure out what kind of data they're getting. And if they were clear from the beginning, maybe everything's just fine, but you want to look for those moments where they're encountering something new, they're trying it out, and they don't really have a good idea about uh, 
what they're collecting and moreover where it's going to go once they collected that. So I think the other aspect is to get them, especially in the qualitative realm, as soon as they have some data, as soon as they have transcribed some, that you move them towards that coding process so they can begin to see that connection um, and then go back in because they do not need to wait for the entire all of their interviews to be done. In fact, I think it helps take them to a deeper level of understanding about both the process and what is potentially coming out. Bonnie, do you listen to their interviews, like the recording? Honestly, I haven't um, to date. I think that's a lovely idea. And I bet that my other colleagues have that. I generally, um, let them go forward. We talk about, and I, because I've used Vivo a lot, and I think it's borderline magical when it's used well, we talk about the ability to put it in and transcribe it, but I haven't made them uh, give me audio so that I could listen to it. However, I'm a big believer in that. I just maybe haven't had enough people that 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 have needed that extra support but i would do it in a heartbeat if i had someone that i was working with who i had real concerns about where that might go because it's obviously much more dynamic than just the transcripts mm -hmm. before we go on cheryl do you listen to the recordings so, um, you know, I used to be a dean of faculty and I had a video uh, professor who told me that how hard the work was of a video faculty member video and film because it was real time, right? They had to watch the entire student video. And I mm -hmm. often appreciated that people in the social sciences get a read and I'm a really fast reader, right? So I typically read, but recently I've been listening to a few where I worked it into my lifestyle, right? Where I listened to it while I did my walking. And I, I, my, my feedback to that student was better because I had listened to one. She could hear, hear my requesting of her to change her interviewing style. Mm -hmm. I often listen to maybe 15 minutes. I don't listen to the whole thing, but it, it just helps to get a better feel for how they're interacting with the person, you know, if they're cutting them off and that kind of stuff. There are tone issues that there is, and and the cutoffs, like you said, there are things that absolutely will not come through in a transcript that will come through from the audio that would help guide them to be better interviewers. They may not and get better data as a result of that. So it is a, it is a grand um, suggestion that I think is very wise. And I also appreciate Cheryl's comment about how you fit everything in that you're responsible for as mentor, you end up making choices about which what fits with that. But this is a great thing to bring up. It's because it's important and we can have access to it even right. more easily in our online mentoring structure. So Laura, you have ideas, comments? Yes, I yeah, I do think it's so important mentoring in the, the data collection process. And I worked with students individually and particularly um, when it comes to the interview process practicing. Um, and for some students, it's clear just from 
interactions that I think practice may be even more important. So, and also sometimes I wanna make sure that students urgency to move forward in the dissertation doesn't cloud that their style in the interview or, or make the interview rushed. Um, so we'll we'll really work on that patience and, and pacing, things of that sort. I've also had the opportunity to mentor students in metasynthesis uh, uh, dissertations, which are uh, becoming more popular now and inappropriate for some of the questions. And so in that, while we're working with you know data uh, from in the form of articles or or documents in they're working through the process of methodically organizing this information. There's a lot of teaching that has to happen there and then how to organize and, and share that information um, so that we can have that available. So I can kind of look and check on it in qualitative. And I think that's something that's clear across all of our responses. It's, it's pretty important, regardless of the methodology, to be in conversation with your students as you can and be working closely um, because whether it's grounded theory or um, you know basic qualitative study or any type it, it, a student as a novice researcher can um, get ahead of themselves or, or go awry or their uh, subjectivity as had been mentioned can unintentionally get involved but you know based on the methodology um, and sometimes in particular based on, on a student and their, their skill levels and, and readiness, there, there's different, I think everyone needs some hands-on support or at least check-ins, but some, you know, like I love how Cheryl said the apprenticeship, really that the teaching uh, is happening there. And, and that's a really important piece. So how do you all mentor the actual data analysis part? We talked about, you know, like when they're collecting the data, but once they've gotten it, how do you help them through that? Uh, why don't we start with Bonnie this time? So I think this is a really interesting point because this is sometimes where I step back just a bit because it is the point where they need to think deeply, they need to engage, with the information that they have in front of them. And this is like where they either shine or fall or it becomes clear where they need to grow as a novice researcher is in this analysis process. So I will very often sort of say, okay, we've been doing all this, you have it, we've got your sort of preliminary coding, we've seen a little, now off you go, do some more now that you have all of this, and then let's see where you are. And so for me, a lot of the, um, it becomes apparent where they're missing things and you can't leave them too long because they may go off the rails or in a very strange direction or give you back stream of consciousness. But if the guiding has happened up front well, then this is the time where they really need to dig into their own research and figure out their findings. And then as they begin to construct their chapter four discussing the findings, we have a lot to go back and massage and check. And sometimes that means going back 
to their data analysis. But I like to give them some time to sit and do that work themselves because it is at the core. If they have good data that they've collected and we're sure of that and they have a sense of whatever coding or analysis process, I want them to dig deep and make it their own. And Laura? Yes, well, in, I guess, part of this from preparation, it's the, the data organization piece mm -hmm. that I try to make sure they're, they're on track in setting that up and that it is available in a way that we both can have access to it pretty easily. That's one thing that's really nice about these times is um, in terms of being able to have shared spaces for, um, because then when questions do arise in the analysis, it's easy for me to get in and, and look at it and, and respond, um, you know, and so that's part of the mentoring process is being able to be as, provide as, as quick support as possible um, in addition to any, you know, conversations. And so sometimes it'll be for metasynthesis, they've collected a series of articles and I can, and, and there might be a few where they're just not sure. They think they, is that does this fit? And based on what they're looking at, and I can kind of look in and, and give some guidance there. Um, or um, they've gone so far in, in a first level of coding and they have it, you know, visually available in a shared space and I can take a peek at it. Um, so I agree with Bonnie. I definitely want them to have that space to, to sit with it, to, to have independence. But also if we've set up a good system, and help them, you know, to to have that system. I think that's an important skill, just that that whole data organization skill. But then also, it it does really help in the mentoring process to be able to um, see and discuss in 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 real time what um, you know what questions there are, rather than them just telling me something that I can't really look at easily. Laura, you mentioned the shared space. What do you use for that? Well, in the past, you know, we've had, you know, things as simple as, uh, you know, Google uh, Drive um, mm -hmm. in terms of for, you know, the collections of articles for metasynthesis or coding of, uh, you know, different uh, pieces of unidentified information and things like that. But now we have things like, um, you know, we have our, you know, in our classrooms, We've got things where you can post things. You've also, we've got teams. There's certain pieces that can be there. Um, but yeah, there's a variety of, um, you know, uh, I, I try to figure out early on how we can have um, a way to access shared information in, in a, you know, in an easy way um, using, you know, whatever makes the most sense and is accessible. What's nice though, as we think about say classrooms environments uh, for those, you know, uh, people who are mentoring in a classroom environment is it's also nice when, if it, you know, it's, as long as it's, you know, unidentified that other students can see that process as, as Bonnie and Cheryl have mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd say anything where, you know, it's, it's protected, but that it's easy for, for the faculty member to to go right in and and ideally it's something that both members could have a chance to look at if they needed to yeah that would be the best Cheryl how about you anything more well I think yeah I, I mean I think about the different stages so 
most of my students will write into chapter uh, or the methods chapter, you know, chapter three, they say, I'm going to, I am going to transcribe my own interviews because I'll get more deeply engaged, right, with the, with the material. And then life happens. And so we've been having really good discussions amongst this group of students about the choices between transcribing, you know, uh, interviews yourself versus using a, an app to text an, an application that that does it for you and then you read it because 5% of it is, is, you know, messed up or hiring a professional. So that that discussion when they hit like the just in time mentoring, right? Oh, I hadn't realized this was going to be such a problem. Um, so I, I, I would do it then. And um, another time I had a great conversation yesterday on Zoom with the student screen sharing her her um, results section. And I've been working with her in the margins with my uh, comments about the naming of her themes and how she was handling explaining codes and categories and themes. And it was kind of clumsy and a little repetitive. And it was only through looking at her screen and playing with words a little bit like what what would you call this theme that really, you know, characterizes everything that you've included that I think she it empowered her to see what her job is. But not just maybe she was doing a little bean counting, trying to get everything in the right box. But now she has to communicate it effectively as a teacher for anybody who reads her paper. So there's another way to be involved. And then I think a third one we had talked about. Uh, Mike mentioned how do you how does a student know when they've reached saturation? So that I think requires us knowing their data to some degree, so that we know when enough is enough. And I think right. that's a very hard decision for a, a, a novice researcher to make on their own. And and I agree too, as much as I started us out saying, give them some time to become the researchers they are, that once they have something, I agree with what both Laura and Cheryl are saying in terms of, you need to make sure to kind of check in, you know, the ones that need a little more check in a little earlier, the ones that with a quick check-in can keep going for a while. And then everybody needs someone to be able to jump in and look at what they're working with and look at where they're going with it and have, we are to a certain degree, the extra eyes that are really important that the way we have the uh, research process structured they're working alone. And the reality is a lot of times when you're out in the world doing qualitative research, you might be doing it with other people. And you have that grand advantage of different viewpoints coming in to help you see what's actually potentially emerging from the data that you have that you weren't anticipating. And that's also another really kind of tight lever area that's difficult for a novice researcher to have. So having that kind of a conversation about what they're finding and being able to reference and look at some of the data that the raw data that they have, it helps to be able to fuel that conversation and give some greater credibility. Very good. Well, we are almost out of time. I want to thank you all so much for participating today and sharing your expertise. I am sure that it's going to be very beneficial for faculty as they go on and mentor their own qualitative students. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us today for Research Talk. Our music is by audionautics.com, and I'm Dr. Lee Statlander. Today's podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Center for Research Quality. Mm-hmm.